Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we pick a new theme to explore all across film history and cinema. And this week, we're talking about... John Carpenter. Yes, yes. This entire month, we're doing a John Carpenter retrospective. We're looking at five of the movies that kind of encapsulate his career, um, in particular, his flawless like 12 year run from 76 to like 88 and uh what are we watching today today we're watching assault on precinct 13 oh i love this movie this movie's great yeah i had never seen this before wasn't really sure what to expect mm. i ended up really enjoying the film nice so have, so you never heard of it before i'd heard of it i just had never watched it okay going into it did you have any expectations you know, did you think it was going to be a really bad kind of, like, Carpenter proving himself movie? No, I'd heard good things about it, and I didn't watch the trailer going in. I really wanted to go in knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. And it really exceeded all the things that I built up in my head that what it could possibly be. Because, I mean, it kept me going the entire <laughs> way. I was just like, okay, they're not going to be able to top this. So I was just like, what that happened and they just they kept going and going it's a movie that has a lot of tension a lot of suspense and then it finally explodes yeah. and when it explodes it explodes no like it literally explodes exactly i mean the movie it's a little bit of a horror movie it's a little bit of a thriller mm -hmm. it's a, western it's, it's a little bit of a western and it's it's really masterfully done even though like none of the villains have any lines in the movie no, and which I think that's kind of genius because there's a lot of inspirations that Carpenter took to make this film, but one was uh, Night of the Living Dead by George Romero. And he was like, I want this gang to be like the zombies ascending onto the house. And it's like, yeah, that's the feel that you get. There's just more and more of them coming. They're not saying anything. And I think the, the fact that they're not talking at all makes them even more terrifying. Exactly. And it also completely removes the idea that these gang members are human. Carpenter yeah. does not want you as the audience to be like, oh, they're gang members. They're from this like rough neighborhood and this is like the lifestyle they're in. It's like, no, these are ghouls or, or zombies or yeah. monsters in the in the darkness. That's no what sympathy. They are. These are just monsters coming after you and they won't stop until you're dead. And the fact that they're so crafty in the way that they do things... It, it's supernatural. It's, it's supernatural to an extent because there's this big old shootout and they look out and the our heroes look out the window after the shootout and all the bodies are gone and all the... The cars are gone. Yeah, everything's set up and it looks like nothing's happened. Mm -hmm. And it's so eerie. Like That's the other thing. The movie feels like it's these, it's these normal people against a supernatural force. Yeah. Which I think is a lot... That comes back in Carpenter's filmography. I mean, you see it obviously in like The Fog. The Fog. Um, the, you can even say in Halloween, which Halloween, comes, which is yeah. his next movie. Christine. Christine. That's a big one. Um, if they the they live the thing. Mm. It's it's people put against this unknowable or supernatural force and trying to it's basically survive the night. Yeah, and oh. God, this this is a good movie. So where where do you want to start? Do you want context? Do you want the plot? Uh, do you, where, where do you want where do you want to go with this? I think you should give me a little bit of context since this is new to me. It might be new to some of our listeners. Yeah, and if you're new to this, that's not surprising because 
This movie comes out in 1976. This is John Carpenter's first real movie. He makes this after Dark Star, which you can watch for free right now on Tubi. Mm -hmm. Along with this film. Along with this film. And Dark Star is, uh, I'll lovingly say, a a very ambitious um, student film. It's He made it as a student film at USC with Dan O'Bannon. He wanted it to be his calling card, but you watch it and you're like, this is a no-budget film. It's impressive for a student film, mm -hmm. but it's it's a no, it's a student film. So he's bouncing around trying to get work. He writes a couple of spec scripts. He writes Eyes in this movie. And then he realizes that he will never direct a film unless he funds it himself because no one wants to buy his scripts. So he takes Siege, reworks it because it's originally a Western, and decides, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make Assault on Precinct 13, I'm going to make this my calling card movie. So he gets all of his film buddies and kind of borrows all the money from his friend's parents. Mm -hmm. His favorite quote of uh, raising money is, I'm glad I went to school with rich kids. Yeah. And he scrounges up like a hundred grand and puts this movie together, which this does not look like a hundred thousand dollar movie. No. It's, it's very, it has that low budget kind of feel, but it makes it more documentary style, which is another style that they were trying to go with this by giving us the times and the dates on things. So you feel like you're progressing with them throughout the day. And I think that kind of works with this film because it makes you feel like you're in it in the moment with them. Yeah, the movie definitely has this gritty quality that I feel we lose in later Carpenter films, but that might just be because the person who shoots this is uh, Douglas Knapp, who he shoots Dark Star, he shoots this, and then he does like Star Trek and TV work after this, but mm -hmm. he doesn't really direct or he doesn't really shoot feature films after this. But you can tell the camera is a lot rougher. Yeah. Especially the opening sequence where it's the gang members and they're in that, like, corridor and then the cops, like, ambush them. It's all handheld and it's real dirty and gritty. I mean, that kind of camera work gave me such Halloween vibes. You know, looking down the stairs and the lighting. I was like, okay, this is really cool. This feels very Carpenter. And I mean, yeah, we have this ambush on the gang, uh, gang members and they just die. It's like two minutes into the movie. You've got like a bunch of dead bodies on the floor. And it's like, okay, where are we going to go now? Oh, yeah. The movie opens with cops just slaughtering this, this group of gang members. And that's what Carpenter wanted to do because he wanted to make a movie that made a statement. He took inspiration from Rio Bravo. He took inspiration from Night of Living Dead. And he's like, I want to go a step farther than Night of Living Dead. I want to make people know john carpenter yeah and the movie gets going and we have that opening sequence where he kill where the cops just ambush these guys there's no warning shots they just unload with a bunch of shotguns on guys yeah and then we cut to four warlords i'll i guess you can call them just silently in their evil lair swearing a fucking blood oath yeah i was just like what is going on because it looked like they were sitting in church pews. I'm like, are you guys like an abandoned church making a blood oath? For what? Be they The cops killed their boys, so they got to make revenge, you know? That's some like hardcore shit right there. I mean, just seems unsanitary. Okay, let's sh <laughs> share the same knife, bleed out, Th this get some dust and grime in those wounds. This is 78. This is back when, you know, you could... 
you could still probably buy heroin over the counter. Come on now. Was it just, you know, cocaine and Coca-Cola? When did they stop putting cocaine and Coke? Or in Coca-Cola? I have no idea. Uh, Note to self, I'll look into that. But... I drink Dr. Pepper. It's it's one of those weird things that the movie opens like this. Because it's just driving into the audience that these guys are not human. They're, they're not good. They're not good. They're, they're cutting themselves. They're doing this weird witch... This weird ritual. I can use words. And it's it's so, like... You're so, like, confused, but you're just compelled to figure out what's going on. And then it just cuts... Right into middle of the day, Lieutenant Bishop's waking up and he's going to go into work. And Lieutenant Bishop is played by Austin Stoker. And I wonder if Carpenter's doing another homage to Night of the Living Dead here. Yeah. Because this movie is made in 76 and Lieutenant Bishop is, he's an African-American man. He's playing a police officer. And throughout the movie, he is nothing but like the upstanding paragon of good yeah throughout the movie and austin stoker he played like police officers in tv before Mm -hmm. this but i believe his major film work was in like a couple like pam greer coffee like black exploitation films this is still at the heart of black exploitation i don't think we still i still don't think we get like a upstanding african-american lead other than Sidney poitier I guess. I don't know. You're the one that took all the film classes. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I I think he's just a really interesting thing because we have him. He's waking up. He's going to start his day as a fresh lieutenant in the L.A. police force. I mean, we even see him encounter the prisoners when they finally arrive at his precinct that he's closing down. He treats them like human beings. And it's just it goes more towards his character where he's very humane versus some of the other characters that we see in the film that are just, you know, we've got the gang members that are just unlawful, bad, or evil. They're, they're like, robotic. They are living guns, basically. Yeah, and then we have, you know, other people in the forest that, you know, kind of just throw the inmates around, and then you have him where he actually makes eye contact and he speaks to them like they're actually people because they are. Yeah. And and that's the thing, because... Bishop goes to work and he gets to the precinct and they're like, it's going to close down. Like, mm-hmm. they're you're basically just on watch duty because this precinct is going to be poof, up in smoke. And parallel to that, like you said, we get to see the prisoners interacting with other police officers, with the warden. Mm-hmm. And in those prisoners, the true star of this film. Yes. Na- Napoleon Wilson, played by Darwin Jostin, is has one of the most compelling faces I have ever seen. Yeah, I was surprised. I, I wasn't sure who I was going to walk out of the film loving. Mm. And I was like, really? Napoleon? I'm like, <laughs> that dude had so much charisma. I was like, okay, I, I can fuck with this. This He's a cool guy. And it's crazy because Darwin Johnston, or Jostin, he doesn't really become a star after this. You know what he, he become what he does after... No assault on precinct thirteen. Basically, what he was doing beforehand. No idea. He was a teamsters driver. Cool. He would drive stuff. He was on the transportation team of like the American president, like mm-hmm. that Rob Reiner movie. And he would work as a driver for like movie sets. And he would moonlight as an actor to make ends meet. And I'm like, you. 
this guy is a movie star. Yeah. He is delivering, like, he's delivering lines that, if anyone else said, would be ridiculous. It's that charisma and charm and the whole, him embodying Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. Yeah, he he is every cool Western character just rolled up into one. He can throw the withering one-liners out there. He can say something as dumb as, man, you look like you got spit in your shoe. And I'm like, that line said by 99% of anyone else on this planet would be ridiculous. No, I, I think he said, who spit in your socks? Oh, it's oh some, that's something, even worse. Something like that, because uh, the other inmate, uh, what's his name? like? Wells. Wells. Yeah, that, this is when he's like freaking out and he wants to get out of there. And he's like, you know, why are you acting like someone spit in your socks? And even he kind of stopped like, huh? Who, and, who says that? And I was like, why would someone spit in my socks? That's gross. Also, <laughs> Wells, played by Tony Burton, he's another actor who is so good in this. Oh, yeah. And it he goes on after this to be in like the Rocky movies. He's mm-hmm. one of Apollo's uh, uh, corner men. Yeah. I, I have no idea what his name is in those movies. No, and I, I was even trying to remember. I'm like, is it Apollo's team? Like, I forget what they call it in boxing when you have, like... He's like the he's either like the cut man or something. Mm-hmm. He's in his corner. Yeah. But it's fascinating because he is giving, like, a hard, like, studied performance oh, in this. Oh, yeah. And he is freaking out, and he's he's funny. That's the thing. All the characters in this are good. Well, Even he's, the female characters. He's also sincere, too, because he's seated next to the sick inmate. Mm-hmm. And he's just pushing and pushing and trying to tell them, you know, it's not a cold. This guy is, you know, hacking up a lung. You need to get him help. And it was kind of reminding me of um, Con Air with yeah. Nick Cage and his cellmate. Where his cellmate, you know, has the the diabetes, and he's just like he is sick. You need to help him, and it's like we got it reversed, where he's just, you know, he's sick. He, you know, help him, and I'm like, okay, maybe that's where he got some of his inspiration for his per- performance, because I mean, he's just really going to bat for this, you know, inmate that he probably doesn't know just from being next to him for a couple months or weeks, however that works. Well, I feel like you could probably draw a lot of lines to a bunch of other movies. With Assault on Precinct 13. Because it, it, it's like the best Siege movie. Yeah. It is, it is you know, in line with like Not a Living Dead and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But I could see people taking homage from this. But uh, I almost forgot. The female characters in this, because it's 1976. Yeah. There's not a lot of well-written female characters now. But, oh my word. Leia? Or Le- Lee? Lay? I think it's Lee. Lee, played by Lori Zimmer, is so good. In She's this. a badass. I loved she is, her. She is the bad bitch. I had to look her up because she looked so familiar. I still haven't been able to figure it out. I think there's another actress that she looks like. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't, you know, put a face to the name. But, you know, when I was searching for her on IMDb, she doesn't have a lot of movies that she's done before or after this. Her career is like five years. And, and I was just like... And it ends with like some French short film and that's and that's it. And, and she does like, like four movies. They needed to put her in some more action movies because she kicked fucking ass. I mean, she gets shot in the arm and she's there trying to cinch it up herself. Mm-hmm. She's still, you know, ready to shoot. She's got a, you know... A fling going on with Napoleon. And I love that because it's a it's like a romance thing and it's so subtle. And you're sitting there and you're like, do they do they like each other? What what's going on? And then 
Napoleon gives his line. He's like, got anybody got a smoke? And she just puts the cigarette in his mouth. And he's well, like, got I think a light, lights I, it. And I'm like, there's so much sexual tension right now. I could cut it with a knife. You don't even need the knife. It's just going to fall apart on its own because it's just... It's so, it's so juicy. It's so tender. But that's a whole thing that Napoleon's going through. You know, as soon as we first see him on the screen is he's asking somebody for a smoke. And, you know, either people don't engage with him or they don't really answer his question. It's not until we meet uh, Bishop where Bishop actually gives him an answer and tells him, you know, I don't smoke, but if I find one... I'll let you know. I'll let you know. And, you know, Napoleon's kind of like, whoa, you're talking to me like I'm a human being, not like, you know, I've got the the jumpsuit on and I'm a bad guy, just, you know, one guy talking to another guy. That's something that I love in this movie, is how there's so many subtle things going on. Like, Lee is is all over that. Yeah. Like, she she's really stone-faced, she's very, like kind of quiet and she has like that steely blue gaze mm-hmm. where she's not really giving a lot but you can tell that she's like oh bishop you're, you're kind of cute you know they're having like their their thing going on and her napoleon it, that's it's all over that but with napoleon whenever he's talking to somebody he's like anybody got a smoke and it's just him sizing up people mm-hmm. and even with and that's the thing with bishop the subtlety there is that there's no subtlety he is he is as you know boy scout as can be and it's and it's so good because he's a boy scout but he's not lame he's not no. dumb no one's dumb in these movies no and i feel like napoleon when you know he gets the smoke from from lee it's kind of like i've met my match and i don't know if it's just me but the two of them kind of give me like a film noir couple kind of feel like let's turn it black and white Let's get some suits and some, you know, uh, some dresses, and we've got, you know, a power couple. That's the thing. I feel like Carpenter's main asset for this movie in particular is casting. Yeah. Because Justin has the face of, like, a seasoned, like, old school actor. He mm-hmm. looks like somebody you would see in, like, Gunsmoke or Bonanza, or he you can see him on the set of Rio Bravo. He looks like an old school actor. But and then he's got the coolness of like Bogey, McQueen. Yeah, he, he looks like somebody who could have been like a, a movie star mm-hmm. in like the early 60s. And then you can even say that about um Zimmer. Yeah. She looks like one of those like femme fatales mm-hmm. that you would see in like a double indemnity. Really, she strikes me as somebody who can deliver that kind of fast and sardonic dialogue of like a howard hawks um comedy even a may west she could probably just drop a line and it's just like oh wow i just barely got that that was clever but it was also funny and cool at the same time and that's the thing it is so fascinating to me that carpenter that's what carpenter's putting his money into in this movie Mm -hmm. he's putting his money into into getting good actors because he can't afford movie stars just yeah. plain and simple he can't afford movie stars so he's gonna find the best actors he can and then all the money he's gonna put in is making the movie look as good as possible it, famously he doesn't shoot this on 16 like a lot of low budget films he gets a 35 panavision he does he does the full board professional film Not film bad. crew he goes a lot of money into his sound design mm-hmm. And because he's doing the score himself, saves money there. He has Tommy Lee Wallace and him are doing the sound work mm-hmm. in post. So he's saving money there. And then it's just, it's one set and then guerrilla filmmaking on the streets of Los Angeles. Oh, hell yeah. And I mean, you feel like you're in there. 
I mean, even it was giving me Reservoir Dog vibes when they're traveling around in the car. Mm-hmm. And then you see the guy sitting around in the car and they're just driving around with the silencer, like poked out of the window. Yes. And they pull it back in. And I was just like, that's terrifying. You know, being, you know, a person walking down the street and you don't know that someone could potentially shoot you with a silencer and no one's going to hear mm-hmm. and no one's going to help you. Just like one of the most horrific scenes in the movie. Yes. And that actually leads us into the third ongoing plot line. Because the first one is Bishop. He's going in and he's. Uh, closing down the, the, the precinct. precinct. The th- second one is Bishop and the prisoners, and they're being taken off to a maximum security mm-hmm. prison so he can wait out a sentence or death row and whatnot. And then this third one is the gang members are cruising along and they're going to find somebody to kill. And they come across a father and daughter who stop off on a side road so the father can use the payphone because he he's kind of lost. He's lost in LA. Well, he's lost, and he's also going to... His grand, his mother's house to get her out of the city. That's that's the context I picked. And up. the daughter, he's like, you know, he's training her. Okay, when they ask you this, say this, this, and that. And the daughter, you know, being a little girl, is just asking why. Why are we doing this? And when they stop at the payphone, there just so happens to be an ice cream truck that's parked not too far from the payphone. And this guy, I don't know if he's like a private detective or if he's with. The police force, he's there taking notes. No, he's just an ice cream man. He's just tallying up the end of the day. Is he? I thought he was taking notes because the car keeps going back and forth. No, no. That's, see, that's another thing. Is it's really... I mean, you could probably infer that because he is just stopped there and it doesn't look like he's actually trying to sell ice cream. He's like... I think what he is, he sees an ice cream man who's tallying notes and he has just a gun in the truck okay. in case he get robbed. Because I interpreted that, you know... They just were able to, like, commandeer a truck and, you know, okay, throw on the shirt, sit here, and kind of surveil. Because when I saw him, you know, with the notepad, I thought, oh, maybe he's trying to get the license number from the the car. Yeah. Because, you know, they keep saying all day that, you know, all hell's broken loose in Los Angeles and, you know, people are getting shot and it's mayhem. So I just assumed he's one of the detectives out there surveying the streets and kind of like okay you know i've got a tip on this street you're in they're moving this way that way i love that reading because it still makes sense too like that's actually really interesting because that's a level onto the movie that i've never seen before is that guy could just be a a a pi just and not just an ice cream man but i like that i like that that read or he's just an ice cream man who's who's unfortunately in the wrong place yeah an ice cream truck but then the little girl who's played by Kim Richards. Yes. Yes. As she goes up to the ice cream truck, gets her chocolate swirl, and she's like, as she's like trotting back, she's like, oh, this isn't chocolate swirl, this is just vanilla. And when she goes back, the fucking warlord has already killed the ice cream man, and then well, he does- he hasn't died yet. He has, yeah, he's just shot him. He, he shot him twice in the back. And then she's like- Hey, this is just vanilla. And the guy no, doesn't even look at her, just, boom, blows Kim Richards away. And I mean... And you see it. Yeah, it's not suggested. It's a full-blown shot that you see. And I mean, I've been surprised with movies, but I mean, this was one of those times where, like, I physically reacted. I made, like, a, like, you know, a noise. I was just like, oh my god, because you don't see that in movies, especially with children, like uh, The Untouchables. When they blow up the bar and the little girl's trying to hand the the briefcase mm-hmm. back to the guy that's loaded with the explosives. They pan away and you're just, you know, okay, she was in there. But I mean, to see a child actually be taken down, I was just like, how? This and is she, horrific. And she's equipped. There's a squib on her. Blood goes yeah. off. 
And it's one of those things where it's so transgressive, especially in 76. And the other thing is, so I love this story. So they are showing this at uh, Cannes. They take it off. They're showing it at a Mm -hmm. film festival. They're showing it at Cannes. George Romero's there. Mm -hmm. And George Romero hears like, oh, there's this movie playing. And the director says he's inspired by my work. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll go give it a I'll go give it a watch. I'll see what all the fuss is about. And George Romero was already like, I made Night of the Living Dead, oh, I made yeah. Dawn of the Dead, I made Martin. I think that's what it is. He was featuring Martin. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I am the fucking transgressive god. I am pushing the boundaries of what cinema can take. And he's watching the movie. And when the little girl is shot, he's like, Well, well, what the fuck? I can't beat this. Like that. Like, that is the most, like, messed up thing you can do oh, on screen. Yeah. I can, how can I compete with this guy? And that's the thing. John Carpenter is like... I'm, I'm John Carpenter. I'm John Carpenter. I'm here. Like, this is what... this is. I'm willing to push the envelope this far. What, what can you give me? Yeah, I was just so shocked and gutted when I saw that. I was like, oh my god, I don't like to see any child get hurt or anything. So I was just like, what just happened? And I'm like, well, this is kind of big because you don't see this in movies. And I know this movie kind of struggled here, but I know early in the 90s, Mel Gibson did an interview and he brought up the movie and he talked about how that there's this scene in the movie and it's only happened once or twice in films. Apart from that, after that interview, the tape rentals on this movie went up because everyone was so curious about it. And I was just like, I still... I. I mean, I just watched it yesterday. I I can't believe what I watched. It's just so shocking. And it's a thing where even now, people don't... No, we don't want to see this. Yeah, and especially because usually stuff like this happens and it's like, oh, a kid died, but it's like it's off screen. Mm -hmm. Or if the kid dies, then it's like in a movie where it's trying to be like gross and disturbing. Yeah. This is like an action movie. And And a little girl dies and you're like, oh my God. And it's broad daylight. It's not played for scare, and it's so sudden and quick. It's it's really a commentary about like gangland violence. Gangland violence. People and the, just die. And the fact that the father leaves his daughter's body laying on the floor to go chase these gang members. Okay, I loved this this performance because the the father he runs up and he is like, he's not even screaming. It's not like a no yelling it at the gods. He's just like confused he's just over his, her his daughter's dead body and he just can't comprehend what's going on and he doesn't say anything and he's like quivering mm-hmm. as he's like putting his his jacket over his daughter and he's like sobbing over her body when the ice cream man's like gun under the dash mm-hmm. uh, and then he dies because it's a movie yeah and then i love this the dad's like i'm charles fucking bronson i'm gonna go ghost these motherfuckers <laughs> And it's great, because you believe it. Yeah, I mean, you know, revenge, but I mean, you also don't leave your daughter lying there. It's just like, you know, at least, you know, take her with you, put her in the back of your car, so she's not just a body laying, you know, on the sidewalk, but I'm gonna- Charles Bronson will will leave the body. (sighs) He's on revenge. But I'm gonna tie this back to Halloween, because Kim Richards does have some relevance- I, I know this. Are I know you, this one. Do yeah. you? Because she is Kyle Richards' sister who is in Halloween. Yes. I I heard of this because this is a thing that happens with Carpenter a lot. Mm-hmm. And even with this movie because uh, Nancy Loomis and Charles Cyphers, Cyphers, they both show up in Halloween, his, yeah. his very next movie. Mm-hmm. 
And I would imagine he was probably like, oh, Kim Richards, I'll just bring you in for the next one. But she probably aged out of the role of... Yeah, because she's a couple years older than her sister Kyle. So they're like, well, you know, basically, they're, I think, three sisters. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if the oldest sister acted too, or she just did modeling. She's Kathy Hilton of... The Hilton Fortune. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's another thing. Um, John Carpenter is two or three degrees separation from Paris Hilton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super close. But, uh, yeah, you know, Kyle ended up being Lindsay Wallace in Halloween. And then our other tie-in is Donald Pleasance, who isn't in the film. Yes. But his daughters were such a fan of this movie that he was kind of like, you know what? You know, yeah, maybe I'll try out for Halloween. And then after that, he was like, I love John Carpenter. Let's do all your movies well, together. That's the thing. It's the soundtrack they loved. Yeah. And that's another thing we got to point out. Yeah. The soundtrack to this movie is so good. Oh, yeah. And it's and this is like 76. And it's like a synth soundtrack, but it's old school. So they're programming mm-hmm. the synthesizer. It's old tubes and shit. And it's like a Frankenstein machine to play. Yeah. And John Carpenter, he famously writes the whole score in like a day or mm-hmm. three. It's something super short. And he blows out the whole thing in, like, a week. And he's like, it saves me money. I can just do it myself. And that is a theme throughout his career. He's like, I can save money by just scoring the movie myself. Mm -hmm. I know what I want. I don't have to explain it to anybody. And I save a shit ton of money. And that's Carpenter to a T throughout his his entire career. If he can find a way to do it himself, he'll do it. Yeah. He he edits this movie, but he puts a fake name on it because he doesn't want people to think, oh, he did everything. Yeah. Uh, wrote it, directed it, scored it, edited it. He's a he's an extra in he's the a, scene. He's one of the gang members that gets blown out of a window. <sighs> which, I read that afterwards. I was like, damn, I wish I'd been paying a little bit more attention. But I don't think I could have seen, you know. You you can't tell. Because he says, I'm, I'm the one that's blown out the window. I'm like, there's five of you. Yeah. And none of you I can see your faces. Yeah. But to take it back to earlier when I said, you know, it didn't do too well initially on its release here because, you know, this it's, is the home of the Western films. It's also, it's a B movie. Yeah. So over in the UK, there was a British uh, distributor that put out the film. It's, I think he saw it and he's like, you know, let me submit it into this festival. And it ended up taking the top prize because I guess the UK people aren't used to a lot of westerns like we are so it was just kind of like oh cool like you know a modern day western this is awesome so it won it got carpenter money and it was just a big deal over there so i guess when he was writing halloween he was like you know what i want to kind of like pay homage to this guy that really helped me out when i didn't ask him for help and his name was michael myers Oh, jeez. So I was like, yes, this makes so much sense. <laughs> yes. Assault on Precinct 13 is the seed in which all of Carpenter grows out of. Oh, yeah. And 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 that's another thing. The movie is so bare bones. Mm-hmm. And it's super simple because, you know, the father goes off and he chases down the daughter, the killer. The killers. Kills the killer. Or kills the white warlord, and then the other warlords well, are he, like... Well, he is the killer. He's he, the, yeah. he is the gunman. They, they're all killers. He kills yeah. them. And then he's like, realizes, oh shit, there's more of them, and I'm out of bullets. So he runs into the police station, and that's when we begin the siege. And the siege is great, because 
that's when Lieutenant Bishop has to, you know, take charge of everything. He has to be the, the strong leader and he refuses to give up the father because he knows what's going to happen and that's not the right thing to do. He releases Napoleon Wilson because we need his help. Even though he's killed people, this guy, we need his help. And in his eyes, I can trust this man. Same with Wells. And Lee is just being the baddest bitch on the planet. Takes a shot in the shoulder and she's like, nah, fuck you. And then kills like 15 dudes one arm well, that and i could also see like where this also takes stories from mythology what is it the the monster where if you cut off one head more heads grow the hydra the hydra there you go and it's like that's what we're getting he kills the the gunman that killed his daughter but then more men approach and then more and more men keep descending and it's like my god how big is this gang and it's like they keep shooting them out and then just more people keep arriving on the precinct and it's just like holy crap how are they going to survive with limited ammunition and weapons yeah and that's that's the great thing about it because this is where carpenter puts all the money in is when it's the siege he he didn't skimp out on this even though it's shot in a way where it's super simple guy comes into the window cut to napoleon wilson blasting with a shotgun cut back the guy falls out the window and it's just that repeated but it's cut so fast, the sounds so hard, yeah, and it's so intense, and it go and it doesn't break. We watch the whole siege for like five, ten minutes, mm-hmm. and it's heart racing, it's pounding, and it's going. Especially when you see, you know, uh, what is it? Bishop he checks his, you know, his watch from how long the dad arrives to when all this is going on, and he's like, "It's only been thirty minutes," and I'm like, "My God, it feels like this has been going on." for hours that they've been trapped in there trying to fight off these, you know, gang members. And it's like, no, it's only been half an hour and no one's coming to help them. And and that's another thing that I think Carpenter really picks out about Los Angeles, especially at this time. Yeah. Because where they are, it's like, they're in the middle of a city. It is Los mm-hmm. Angeles. But you look outside and it's just empty. Yeah. Because this is before LA got like really developed where you could really kind of if you were a, you know, disreputable person, you can legit dump a body in a hundred places mm-hmm. in LA and no one would, would notice no. for a while. And where they're shooting, because I think they're shooting in Watts, right? And I know, and they're doing it for the, um, well, the exteriors they're shooting in Watts. And they're doing that so they get the aesthetic of kind of a rundown, kind of a unbeat up little neighborhood where if they hear gunfire they're probably not going to call the cops. They they know what's going on. And it's yeah. and, and it's a thing where Carmen is almost making like a, a socio-political commentary where viewers, there's a whole, there's a war going on in this little section of LA and the cops aren't coming. But I mean, even now, you know, in the neighborhoods we live in, you know, we hear loud noises all the time. And sometimes it's like, okay, I know that's fireworks. And other times like, was that a gunshot or was that a firework? And it's like, well, I can't see it, so I can't really call and report anything because I don't know what it was. And and here's the other thing. In Los Angeles, if you wanted to, to shoot somebody, you need to wait until the Dodgers win a game. No one will hear the gunshots. Fireworks blasting off everywhere. That, I mean, straight that's... Straight up, I know the days I cannot sleep, and that coincides with Dodgers home games. Well, that that's also big fights, too. Yeah. Like yeah. MMA or UFC. 
I mean, I've noticed that in recent years. Like, if someone wins, like, Canelo wins. Oh, God. We, we get, you know, a fireworks show. So it's just like, On, I don't is, have to watch. I have, I have to know that the night's over. I have no <laughs> meme, no hyperbole. If every time Canelo has won about a mariachi band begins playing not three blocks from my house and they do not end till 4 a.m. Well, I mean, that's... Isn't that one of your neighbors? They always have parties and the, there's yeah, always music. Yes, but it's it's coincidentally, every time Canelo wins, somebody starts playing a mariachi it's band. It's a big deal. I'm I, sorry. What? Do they have a mariachi band on call for this? That's what I want to know. Uh, I mean... Because it's not a recording. No, I, I mean... I look it, back and there's a tent and there's a fucking mariachi guys. Well, it happens. But besides the point, this you is you gotta party when you want to party. Besides the point, this is the neighborhood, and it's it's great because Carpenter spends the whole first half of the movie establishing that this neighborhood is desolate. It is it is so weird to see L.A. empty. Yeah, and I know it's not like an L.A. neighborhood; it's not like city proper. Yeah. But there's nobody on the streets. But we also see the frustration of the cops that are in the car trying to find out where the noise is coming from. And even they, who are moving continuously, are struggling to find where the sound is coming from. Yeah. And that's still very valid to today, where, you know, you could hear explosions or loud noises and you can't find it unless you are, like, physically oh, hey, this is coming from right next door. And I can see it, and I could hear it, I could smell it. But otherwise, the sound's just gonna bounce, and then you get the, you know, oh, well, yeah, but the helicopter's busy right now, so I guess just keep driving around till you see something. And, Gotta go. And it builds up more tension, because us as the audience, oh, come on. It's like, we know. You're, you're like, right down the street. And but it's like, these fucking, but the gang members are mythical. Well, they're mythical, but also the cop that's driving the car isn't listening to his partner who keeps saying, you know what, I've got a bad feeling. Why don't we check the abandoned precinct? I've just got a gut feeling. And the, the lead driver, you know, no, nothing's going to happen there. It's an empty building. And it's like, wouldn't that be the perfect place for something to happen? An empty building? But again, that's why it's, but again, the, he's not acting dumb. That driver no. is not acting dumb. He's just being, he's just acting kind of logical. He's like, it's an abandoned, it's not an abandoned police station. It's been abandoned for months. He's, it's been abandoned for like three hours. He's being logical, but he's also frustrated. And I think the frustration is starting to take over from, you know, hey, you know, maybe I should, you know, tap into his gut instinct and maybe we should go check and see what's going on down there. Huh. But then they get shot up. They get shot up after, you know, one of the most iconic horror tropes where, oh, it's raining. As and, soon as it starts raining. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait, there's no rain. You know, why is there a sound of, you know, rain hitting the car? And there is the repairman from the phone lines, because all the phone lines in the city or this immediate area have been cut out yeah. by the gang members. So the precinct can't call anybody. And there's the poor guy trapped in the cords, just bleeding out. And I was just like, of course it is, because this is a horror movie. It's it's uh, so good, because it's playing with horror tropes, it's playing with action tropes, it's playing with these western tropes, and it and it all pays off. But the siege happens, the cops get got, and the, the, the survivors are like, alright, we gotta make our last stand, we gotta make the Alamo mm-hmm. here. We're gonna go down to the basement, I'm gonna set up some of the evidence we have, which is these, um, uh, cell... Basically giant propane tanks. Basically, yeah. ex- I think they're settling tanks of just, like, highly it. flammable, mm-hmm. explosive liquid. 
I'm going to send them up at one end of the corridor. We're going to be in the back. We're going to try and get as many of them down here, hold them off as long as we can, and then I'm going to blow the, the, the gas tanks. And with three rounds. With three rounds. And you're like, oh, shit. This is going to get good. And they're, getting, and they're getting ready. And that's when you have the whole, you know, anybody got a smoke and lace? Like, here, have some sexual tension for you. And you're like, oh, God. It's gonna happen. I mean, we didn't even talk about the first time that they actually get into, like, where the cells are. Oh, yeah. Where they come in through the back door, because people are trying to, like, uh, the other deputies are trying to get back on the police bus to, like, flee out of there. And you've got people in the back, they shoot them up, and they're able to come through that back door. And that's when Lee gets shot in the arm. And, you know, her and Napoleon kind of have that scene where he saves her. And, I mean... I have seen people break their oh, arms God. in movies. I knew you were going to say it. That was so gnarly, the way he just lifted him up in the air and broke his arm. I was like, oh my God. It, that is one of those effect shots where if you watch it now, you're like, man, that's like a, and it's like just a, a broom or some whatever wrapped around it. It's fine. But you watch it in the moment, you're like, oh God. Oh, that's some like, like um, Anderson Silva breaking his shin bone kind of shit. I Ugh. hate you. I hate when you show me those videos. You're like, oh hey, let me show you this from a fight last night, and you see the guy's arm break or his leg break. I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. But seeing it in that moment, I wasn't expecting it. I'm like, just the sheer power of Napoleon, just to lift the dude up in the air and break his arm and you know throw him across the cells. Like, holy crap! And that's when you realize, okay, Napoleon's not all talk. No. It's not like in other movies that kind of follow this line where you have a guy who's a prisoner and he's like, he's a badass. Well, he's like a- Con Air, when they're like, oh yeah, this is the scariest guy of all time. You know, he's still alive or we're transporting him. And, and it's, it's Steve Buscemi. Buscemi. It's this little guy and it's like, really? You're like the, the most notorious serial, serial killer, killer ever? And then that's why, you know, it's kind of smart they did it with this movie. We don't get too much backstory on Napoleon and the things he's done. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, I could see, you know, He'd be unsuspecting, and then, you know, he could be a killing machine when he needs to be. And I think that's the the smart thing about the movie, is we don't get a lot of backstory on anybody. We no. know a little bit about Bishop. He's from the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and he became a cop and, and whatnot. Yeah. That's about it. Wilson, he killed some guys, but we have no context. Mm-hmm. And he's super shady about it. He doesn't yeah. want to give context to anything. He wants to be mysterious. Yeah. He wants to be cool. And he's very snarky about it. I, I love I love that line, you know, where it's um, Wilson, you know, you're, you know, you're you're a lot of things. You, you're snarky, you're smart. Yeah, I don't know about you. I'm an asshole, you know. You got to remember that. I, I love that. I love oh, that yeah. shit so much. I'm pretty sure I butchered the line, but I love how snarky he is in the movie. Yeah, he's a smart ass, but it's like you feel empathy towards him because it's like I like you. I don't know what you've done, and you've clearly done horrible things but it's like i still like you it's and he has some of the most like like he has the best lines in the movie and i think that really helps you connect with him especially some of the lines that are subtle but you understand how like tragic he is Mm -hmm. he's like oh days are like women they show up and they always run away from me and it's like oh that's that's (laughs) rough bro that's sad or or what is it um uh, don't worry, you know, come on, we gotta hurry up, we're running out of time. Running out of time, I've been running out of time my entire life. Yeah. It's, it's so good, because again, they're tough guy lines that should be so... Cheesy. Cheesy, eye-rolly, like, oh, okay, you're trying to be the badass. Mm. And the guy delivers it like a champ. Yeah. 
But, but I mean, he's able to show empathy, like when uh, when Wells discovers, or well, they all discover that there is a pothole outside that connects to the bottom of the precinct. Yes. And I think they do like a coin toss or whatever. No, they they want to do a coin toss, but Wells is like, I got bad luck. I never win no coin tosses. But if I'm going to do it, we're going to do it my way. How's that, Wells? Potatoes. And they play potatoes, which I have no idea how to play it, and it looks ridiculous. It's grown men acting like children. One potato, two potato, three potato, oh, four. Oh, that's four right. Four potato, five potato, six potato, more. And they're doing yeah. that shit. And it's it's so weird and dumb and out of place, and you laugh at it. But then when Wells is like, well, shit, I lost. <sighs> All right, well, I'll go out there. And then Napoleon is like, all right, when you get out there, before you make your run to the border, try and call for help. Wells is like, I got you, Napoleon. It's it's so good. So good. Tony Burton is so good as Wells, and Jocelyn is so good as Wilson, and they play off each other so great in that scene, and you really feel when Wells dies. Oh, yeah. Except for Bishop, where he's like, oh, that window cracked. Windows crack all the time. And Lee and Napoleon are just kind of shaking their heads like, no, windows just don't suddenly pop and the car comes to a dead stop for no reason. And, and I was just like, Wells, you were so close. That's why you I... You gotta mean, check your back seat. That's why I love Bishop so much, is because he's so just... Man, I'm... Lawful good. Lawful good. I'm like, we really gotta get out of here. Like, I... Please, can this just work just once? And... But he finally gets the plan. They're, they're down in the basement. The gangs, they're making their last hurrah. Because they just killed the police officers. They know the cops are showing up. So they're making their last hurrah to get these guys. And they make the siege. And it looks like a hundred of these fuckers are in this hallway. It is. It looks packed. But you know there's only like 12. And after seeing this scene, I'm wondering if Edgar Wright borrowed this for the end of Shaun of the Dead. He had to. Because when they're at the bottom of the bar and like the storage area, they only have a couple of... uh, rounds of ammunition and they're trying to figure out well do we kill ourselves you know do we kill them oh we could blow shit up and i'm like that's got to be where this came from because it's just really you think with three rounds of ammunition you could blow up that tank kill the guys and save yourselves well they do i mean i was so impressed when they have like the makeshift wall that they have between them and the gang members Uh and they're just using anything they can to beat the crap out of them from the other side and I was just like, okay, you gotta hold on with one hand, and you're just swinging, trying to hit anything while he's trying to make sure he gets that shot. And that and that moment is when it's full zombie movie. Oh yeah, it's full zombie movie. At well, that it's point. the same with um, the the back scene where they have uh, the cells when they first come in, and they're just running through that open back door. Yeah. And I'm like, that is a total zombie movie. Yeah, just terrifying. And it's it's so good because they find. And honestly, the ending of this movie is great because. Yeah. Bishop blows up the tanks, the gang members are dead, the cops show up, it's over, and then the EMTs come in and they're taking them away, and they're like, alright, you're injured, we'll we'll take care of you. And then the cops come down, and they're like, alright, Napoleon Wilson, time no, to go. And Bishop's I, like, no! No, I gotta no, stop you there. You gotta stop me there? Yeah, because the EMTs try to take Lee. Lee, that's right. And Lee and Napoleon are trying to have the fucking moment. Yeah, right? and she, he's like, you know, ma'am, we gotta, you know, um... Uh, Get you on a stretcher and get you out of here. There you go. We got a stretcher for you. And it's just that quiet, you know, just they're talking to each other through each other's eyes. And then she's the one that breaks and walks away up the stairs. Like, I don't need no help. 
I'll walk out there on my own. I'm not going to say goodbye to you, even though I probably will never see you ever again. That That is the bad bitch moment. Oh, yeah. I was just like, bravo. Give her the Academy Award. <laughs> you're you're like, <laughs> not since Ellen Ripley have we had an, an, a female lead so strong. I mean, that woman in that scene is going to live in my heart forever. I was just like, that is one of the baddest bitches ever, and I love her. But then we have an equally badass scene right after. Yeah, because cops come down there, and they're like, all right, Wilson, they're trying to put the cuffs on, and Bishop's like, no! This man's a, this man saved my life. And then they look at each other and he's like, Wilson, it'd be an honor if I could walk out this building with you side by side. And Wilson's like, that'd be mighty nice. And the two of them walk out with the smoke in the fucking hallway. Mm -hmm. And it's like the dust is settling after the fucking shootout at the OK Corral. The sirens are going. You can see the lights and shit. It's like, and then it just fucking ends. And I'm like, that is so fucking cool and it's not even just him yelling no at the other officer he shoves him out of the frame it's like he went to like go and like grab wilson's wrist to like detain him and bishop's just like fuck no yeet sends him flying off and you never see the cop even as they're walking up the stairs like did he shove him like into the pile of the bodies <laughs> no he, he shoved him into the fourth wall he, I, he is gone he's, he's an he's audience gone member forever oh uh, and and that's that's like that's the movie yeah and it's one of those things where Assault on Precinct 13, I think, is one of, like, the best Siege movies. It's, like, so bare bones. It's so simple. It's it's a cheap movie. Like, the movie yeah. is shot, and you can tell it's low budget, but it doesn't look that low budget. No, like, and the creativity of, okay, this was a former precinct. Everything in it is gone now, which makes sense for we don't need to have a ton of desks. We don't need this. We don't need that. It's abandoned for a reason. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, the design of the movie mm. looks so good, and it really plays into the fact that Carpenter wants to make a Western. Yeah. You know, the inside of the precinct looks a little bit like a Western saloon at I times. I mean, let alone when the dad runs into the precinct, and the doors on the precinct are just swinging like old saloon doors in a uh, Western movie. I was like, I fucking love this. Okay, I, I totally get that this is the concept that he's trying to go for. Oh, and... And I want to say this because Assault on Precinct 13, I said it before, it is the seed in which Carpenter's career yeah. grows out of. And I'll, we'll speak on that for a second. Because after this, he does Halloween. Mm -hmm. After Halloween, he does The Fog. And those three movies, that's him getting a little bit more money to show that he can make a movie. Yeah. The This movie, 100 grand. Halloween, 300 grand. Yeah. The Fog, a million dollars. Each of them turns a profit. and the Salt and Precinct 13, that's where it comes from. Yeah. This is where he really figures out how to make a, a feature film for not a lot of money and getting the most out of it. I mean, let alone just the creativity he's able to come up with for a story. Because, I mean, there's tons of movies now where there's so much money put into them and you go and there's so much hype and you watch it and you're like, really? That's yeah. it? That happens so often because so many movies, at least a lot of the genre stuff I see now... Are stuff that are like ripping mm -hmm. off Car Carpenter specifically. Let's be real here. Yeah. Or it's a thing where that's an interesting concept, but the execution's not there. Or the execution's on a there, but it's on a really kind of tried and true concept, or, so it's not that original. Or let's just go for another remake of a classic film, and it's just like, don't touch the classic films, leave them alone. 
the Assault on Precinct 13 isn't even immune from that. It's, what, 2005 that it got a remake? I, 2005 or 2003. I've seen the remake. I, I saw the remake before I saw the original. It has Ethan Hawke in yeah. it, Lawrence Fishburne. It switches the roles up a lot, and you have, like, the police are sieging the precinct. It's because Lawrence Fishburne's character is supposed to be a mob boss that's in bed with the police. And this police unit who's, you know, in bed with him is trying to kill him before he goes on trial or whatever. It's one of those things where it's interesting because they take the concept of an abandoned police station Mm -hmm. under siege and they twist it a little bit to make it new. Yeah. But it's still a early 2000s action movie and Mm. it's too slick to really be this kind of a gritty thing that Carpenter has. Mm -hmm. So I I like eh. this concept more where it's just not what you expect. You, you know, not what the characters expect, you know, okay, I'm just, I'm closing out a building to move on to a building that's a couple miles away Yeah, and not expecting local gangs to descend and basically try to kill all of us in here without leaving a single trace. And also that leaves the question, what happened to all the bodies? I They took them away and it's like, well, where did they take them? That's why I, I was saying the gang, it's, they're mythical. Yeah. They're, they're, they're monsters. They are supernatural. That is the thing about them that makes them so scary because they look like humans, but they don't act like humans. Yeah. They move like people, but they don't, they don't, like, communicate at all like humans do. They like just Michael kinda, Myers. Like Michael Myers. They just look at somebody, and then they, they go on. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you say, Carpenter takes a lot from what he does here and carries on with mm-hmm. it. Michael Myers, for, for instance, I really think, like, the White Warlord, um, played by uh, Frank Doubleday, who shows up again in, like, a bunch of other yeah. movies. A lot of Michael Myers is in that character. Mm-hmm. He he walks slow, very deliberate. He he doesn't seem like he has any emotion to him as he's killing people. He hits he, his target and he continues. Yeah, he's just this, he's a force of nature. And I think that's a thing that Carpenter takes on when he makes Halloween. Mm-hmm. And for the fog, he kind of rebuilds that siege element, but he goes all the way with it. And they are actually mythical creatures. Yeah. They are ghosts. And... That's the thing that I find so interesting of Assault on Precinct 13. It's kind of the blueprint for his his first, like, era of films. Yeah. So how would you, uh, how would you rank uh, Assault on Precinct 13? How, recommend? Definitely. Two thumbs up. Highly recommend it. Uh, I'm probably gonna go watch it again. Because, I mean, <laughs> it was a wild movie in a good way. Yeah, this is definitely one of those 70s action movies that I could recommend to anybody. It's super fun. It's super cool. Uh, You will definitely fall in love with at least one of the characters in this, and it will be a great ride. Napoleon. And it's 90 minutes. It's it's a tight movie, and it feels tight. It's a fast movie, yeah. So, highly recommend. Highly recommend. Uh, So that leads us to next week. Yes, next week. So we talked about Carpenter kind of making his calling card. Yeah. He's a director that can work on a low budget and turn out a a real movie. Like a real, real movie. Now, the next movie is what happens when you give Carpenter not one million, not two million, but a six million dollar budget. A real, like, decent budget, first time in his career, to make one of the coolest action movies ever with Escape from New York. Okay. 
I've never seen it before. Oh, you've never seen Escape from New York? Never seen it before. Oh. I know Kurt Russell is... I was going to say your boy, but I think he is your man. Kurt, Kurt Russell is one of my favorite actors specifically because his appearance in the John Carpenter universe. Especially it's, Big Trouble? Big Trouble, Little China, The Thing, like all of them. All the movies he's in are, are great. But I'm very excited because Escape from New York, it is a... It is like the movie in which Robert Rodriguez saw and decided, I'm going to make that movie forever. Yeah. It is It is super fun. It is a lot of action. It is... It is going to be really impressive when you when you watch it. And when okay. we get a little bit more into like how it was made and, and all that stuff. But Escape from New York, it's going to be great. Two, two thumbs up for everybody out there. Let's go give it a watch. All right. I'm excited. And if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That's The Film Vault on YouTube. Like, comment, and subscribe on any of our videos. They come out every week. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post our adventures, upcoming episodes. We're going to do trivia and a ton more things. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.